Welcome to our ongoing series sponsored by Catholic Church Reform International. I'm your moderator, Rini Reed. Our guest today is Anne Barrett Doyle, who is a co-director of bishopaccountability.org. And before this, Anne co-founded Coalition of Catholics and Survivors, a group that organized activism in the Boston Archdiocese. Welcome, Anne. Thank you, Rini. I'm trying to imagine your professional life. Your office is overrun with floor to ceiling files and more than 100,000 pages of church records on priests. At the end of a workday, you must come home just sick to your stomach. No, you know, uh, I'm often asked that, and that is the assumption, but uh, uh, what's happened over the years that my colleagues and I have been doing this, uh, I, I think we all tend to screen out the horror stories out of, you know, for me, it's a psychological necessity. Um, and I, I, it's actually a very uplifting job um, because I, I think we have a real sense from survivors we speak with and, and ordinary Catholics that we're delivering something of great value and, and, and necessity, which is a balanced public archive, a permanent archive of the information that's been forced out of the Catholic Church in the course of the clergy sex abuse crisis. And uh, well, tell, us, think, yeah. tell us how, how Bishop Accountability got started and what exactly do you do every day? Um, BishopAccountability.org was started by my colleague Terry McKiernan and uh, it, it was 2002 in Boston and the Boston Globe had just come out with the riveting stories that Cardinal Law knew about the pedophile priest John Gagan, that he knew and that he kept reassigning him to parish after parish, giving him access to more victims. Um, this was so stunning to me as a Catholic mother who brought her kids to church every Sunday that, that I just involuntarily in those early weeks of the Boston Globe headlines went to the Cathedral of the Holy Cross in Boston and just stood there with a sign. Um, the sign said, speaking out is holy. And it was a kind of a futile thing to do. I really had wanted to confront Cardinal Law who was saying mass inside the cathedral. But um, that's what I did. And I met up with a couple of other people there who had just involuntarily been, been drawn to the spot for the same reason. We formed a nucleus of a protest movement and I started organizing protests outside the cathedral in 2002. In the course of that, I connected with a lot of other Catholics who were heart sick. And one of them was this document management expert named Terry McKiernan, like me, uh, a Catholic parent, and like me, you know, just so appalled um, that the leadership of the church had covered up for sexual violence towards children. Uh, but, but Terry was really struck by the fact that documents, secret documents, were being forced out of the Catholic Church for the first time. And as the protest um, movement waned, uh, it became increasingly clear that what we had to do was preserve these documents for scholars and uh, also so that this uh, grotesque crisis could be um, studied 
and learned about and never repeated. He really was the visionary in terms of understanding that this was a precious archive, um, an irreplaceable archive. And so uh, in around 2003, he started bishopaccountability.org and, and um, I was honored to join him and we've been working together ever since. I understand way back in 2002, you personally confronted Cardinal Law. Did he, how did he respond to you? You know, I didn't personally confront him. That was my instinct. Um, I had gone to the cathedral to confront him on that January uh, Sunday. Uh, I, I, uh, I lost my courage. I decided I couldn't interrupt the mass. Um, and actually, it, it was funny. Uh, my husband, who's one of my... Um, most heartfelt supporters uh, at that moment he was just uncertain about what i was doing and so he went inside the cathedral with a couple of my kids and a couple of our kids stayed outside with me and uh i saw the protest as a holy act but i didn't confront the, the cardinal all right well from your perspective as an insider after all the years you've worked on this Tell us if you see any signs of it stopping. Is this crisis stopping at all? Well, there's a lot of reason to hope. And, and what's happened is that the victims of, of, of Catholic priests who came forward in 2002, they, they taught society so much. They taught society that um, an institution, a beloved and, and powerful and honorable institution can cover up the, systematically the abuse of children. And uh, it, it, we learned why victims take so long to come forward. We learned how can um, an authority figure as trusted as a priest be a secret child molester and so many people stay silent about it. All these lessons that they were teaching us in the early 2000s have really become commonplace public understanding in the late 2000, in, in, in 2018 and 19, as the, as the Me Too movement burst upon the scene, it really um, reinforced uh, the lessons of the Catholic abuse survivors of the early 2000s. And now, at least in the US, we understand why sex abuse crimes stay hidden for so long. And we also really accept that there is a role for institutions to protect children from the predators who are employed by that institution. So this is a new age of reckoning of the Catholic Church that we have never seen in history. We have never seen civil authorities treat the Catholic Church with the same rigor and objectivity that they would treat any institutional wrongdoer. And, and the, the, the deference and the collusion of civil society with the Catholic Church is decreasing, especially here in the United States. You know, we have right now more than 15 attorneys general are, are uh, criminally investigating the Catholic diocese in their states um, for cover-up. That is absolutely remarkable. You know, we've come to recognize that this movement to have civil authorities step in can accomplish one phase of this they can punish the perpetrators but i think the reason that our organization is growing in support is because we recognize that they can only do that much 
but they cannot bring the needed renewal to our church. Only the people can do that. It can't happen outside of us. Well, you, you know, that's a really interesting point because I think in a way, um, civil authorities are causing reform in the Catholic Church. You know, for instance, in the last year and a half, more than 100 United States bishops have released lists of credibly accused clergy. This is unprecedented transparency. Now, these are not good lists. They are omitting many credibly accused priests off their list. They aren't giving us the information we deserve, but it is significant. This is such a, a, a uh, remarkable shift. Um, so I, and, and this, is, this is only because the public pressure, you know, from parishioners and legislators and, and prosecutors has been, uh, has been abs- you know, just too much for the United States bishops. And, um, and we have victims to thank for this. So I think actually the clergy sex abuse crisis that has been brought forward by the courage of the victims is causing a, a, a decrease in the secrecy of the Catholic Church, at least here in the United States. And my hope as a Catholic is that the United States is in the vanguard of changing the global church um, in terms of its secrecy. And you and I know that our own U.S. Conference of Bishops is among the more conservative, and I would even say resistant to the Pope of all the worldwide conferences. And yet even they, when they met early this year, they were about to uh, ad- address their proposals for how to deal with this whole crisis. And at the last minute, Pope Francis asked them to hold off on their vote until after his conference mm-hmm. that was called in Rome. Were you startled by this insertion of the Vatican? Um, I really was. Uh, this has been very consistent, though. So in a way, I, 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 I both am constantly shocked and then ask myself, why am I surprised? We've seen this before. The Vatican has consistently put the brakes on the United States bishops. The U.S. bishops are the most progressive in terms of this issue only because in the United States, victims have access to justice to a greater degree than they do in most countries. And specifically in the United States, litigation, the power of victims to litigate against the Catholic Church has driven um, change, has caused transparency and, and, and uh, advanced accountability. Um, and, and, and it's pretty unique. So we've seen United States bishops desperately try to stay ahead of prosecutors and legislators by making small internal advances. And what they were proposing at that bishop's conference was the most minimal mechanism for holding uh, bishops who abuse their office, for holding them accountable. And the Vatican intervened and said, no, wait. And we've seen the Vatican intervene with US bishops before, but I should say that eventually Pope Francis himself um, announced last May basically a mechanism similar to what the U.S. bishops were proposing all along. It's just an internal mechanism. It's bishops watching bishops. It's going to be incredibly ineffective. But the, 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 um, the significance of it is that the 
at the highest levels of the Catholic Church. They are now addressing, however imperfectly, a problem they used to deny altogether. They are now admitting that there has been cover-up and, and they say, okay, here's our fix for that. Um, it's, it's really a superficial, inadequate reform, but we have to be heartened by the fact that it's being addressed at all. This is progress. If you were being listened to, which maybe in times you are, how would, what would, what would you say about the fix? To whom? To, to the U.S. Conference of Bishops, to the Vatican bishops who gathered in Rome last February to supposedly address this, this issue. And I say supposedly, let's talk about that. But I don't think they came up with any practical solutions for a fix. Right. I, what I would say is I would encourage them to have more faith in God in regards to the Catholic Church. It, 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 I know it seems like uh, institutional suicide to disclose um, damaging information about what the cover-up has been by oneself and, and one's predecessors. But that is the only way that trust is going to be restored. You so said I, bishops watching bishops isn't going to work. And I think we all know that foxes can't watch their own hen house. Right. Do you, do you think the bishops might consider having more faith in the people of God to bring them in on this since they cannot handle the problem all by themselves? They need us, but they're so afraid of us. I, you know, that's a great point. I, I, uh, I don't know how that shift is going to happen, that they're going to trust the people. I think um, for now, there are external forces compelling the United States bishops to be more transparent and be more law-abiding. They still have a long way to go, but I think over time, um, we're going to see some bishops, I hope, converted to the idea that they have no right to keep secret um, allegations of child sexual abuse by clergy, that this is information that uh, is owed to civil authorities. Um, I think we're going to see leaders emerge. That is my hope among the uh, in the Episcopal Conference. As this February meeting was preparing, our organization wrote to both Hans Zollner and Cardinal Supish asking for clear recommendations, very specific recommendations to come from the gathering. And we proposed several. We needed to rid the church of clericalism. We needed more decentralization of the church. We need to include the people in the selection of their own bishops and we need to move toward synodal participation of the people. But despite all the correspondence and response we received from them, none of this was discussed. Not one issue of this was discussed. We were in touch with Marie Collins, who was absolutely frustrated and just hugely disappointed with the outcome of that February meeting. You're a little bit more on the inside than we are did anything good come of that meeting that you saw that we did not? 
anything good at all? Um, yes, you know, I, I think if, if uh, I, let's see, I think the reasons for hope here, what we heard, the, the, the words being used inside the hall by the bishops and the Pope, they, some of them sounded like activists. Did they put in, did they generate uh, the needed reforms? No, but they talked about cover-up. They talked about holding bishops accountable. Um, they talked about zero tolerance a little bit. Uh, so the language was remarkable. And the fact that this summit was happening at all, I had at first dismissed the importance of it and felt it would have no impact whatsoever, that it was just theater. But what happened was that it drew the news media from all over the world to St. Peter's Square. It was mobbed with journalists and with survivors and activists from all over the world. And so there was a parallel people summit taking place outside the official summit. And, and what you saw there was the authority of the survivors driving the conversation that was happening inside those halls and, and also setting the agenda. In the end, meaningful reform did not emerge but i would say that the summit did a great deal of good because it caused um, media coverage and raised public awareness of this issue in countries where it's gotten no play you know brazil is the largest catholic country in the world by far and this issue was you couldn't find anything if you googled this issue for the last couple of years but I'm now seeing more and more news coverage from Brazil of, of uh, sexually abusive priests being identified and bishops being removed. It's by, it's just a tiny little green shoot. This is not transformative, but I think that the summit actually did accomplish something. Some of us went down to Sao Paulo, Brazil last June and gathered together about a group of 30 of us to talk about not just this issue, but all that we, the people, can do to support Pope Francis in trying to move us forward to be more open, more welcoming, more inclusive. Uh, so I, too, am seeing more come out of Brazil. But you've mentioned that by making public all the records that had previously been buried, you feel that you really are, that we are making headway toward resolving the crisis. You do feel that. I really do. And I feel it because I, I think that the solution is coming from civil society, not the church, but the church is making small incremental changes. There is reason to hope that, you know, um, here in the United States, bishops passed a one strike and you're out rule in 2002. It has big loopholes. We often see accused priests still in ministry, but um, that, believe it or not, that rule, one strike and you're out, has not been made universal. There is literally no zero tolerance um, in the global Catholic Church. A, 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 an accused priest, a guilty priest, a priest found guilty by the Catholic Church, can still, under universal church law, uh, be returned to ministry if the bishop feels he's no longer a threat to children. So. The church has a long way to go, but I think that by continuing to force evidence into the civil arena, 
and to um, galvanize prosecutors and legislators that victims and activists are causing really constructive change that's slowly filtering down into the Catholic Church. I know we feel that one of the solutions is more lay staff tribunals throughout various regions of the world to address these issues. Do you have any idea how many tribunals have been set up to oversee the crisis, even in the United States? Well, it's interesting you should ask that. There's a new story out today by Associated Press talking about the widespread um, failure and inadequacy of the lay review boards that every U.S. diocese is mandated to have to oversee abuse allegations. And uh, so I think that lay review boards or lay tribunals only work if they have um, official power, if they have statutory power in the church. Uh, otherwise, as we saw with the Mary Collins experience with the Pontifical Commission for the Protection of Minors, it's just window dressing. And it's, yes. it's, um, it's when, when uh, lay people just have advisory roles, that's meaningless. That's just bishops paying lip service and, and trying to placate you know, activists and, and reformers. Um, so we have to actually see them being given power, you know, institutional power in the Catholic Church. I'll tell you one thing, I'm also hopeful about the reform of the church constitution that the Pope is instituting because- Yes, talk about that. I, I don't know a whole lot about it, but what I did read is that there's going to be some canonically recognized role giving, given to individual bishops' conferences. And I think this increases the possibility that um, transparency and accountability will filter from the bottom up uh, through the Curia, because there's no way to get at the Vatican. You know, there's, there's no, they don't fall under the jurisdiction of any civil power. Um, they are a, a theocracy, you know, they, they are a separate sovereign country and, and no country has power over them. But that's not true of the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops. You know, those bishops are American citizens and one of them eventually is going to go to prison for child endangerment or failing to report. And so you're going to see bishops in individual countries respond to civil society because they have this dual citizenship. They are citizens, you know, they are obedient to the pontiff, but they also must be obedient to local law. And and so I am hopeful that that is going to um, change the structure from the bottom up, the bottom being the level of bishops in individual countries. It's an interesting bind. On the one hand, the Pope talks about the upside-down pyramid and asking the people to step forward, to speak up, to bother your bishops, to make some noise and make things happen. But on the other hand, you just said, unless these tribunals are sanctioned, if the people have the courage and the initiative to start one on their own, which some have, it still lacks that official sanctioning, that official authority. And so there's a there's a constant bind 
and I'm not sure how we break through it. You think this constitution, which is a bit of a top-down approach, is going to help the bottom-up approach? Well, I think so. Be if indeed the final draft gives more power to bishops' conferences, shifts power from the curia in the Vatican to um, local bishops' conferences, I think that will uh, exponentially increase the chances that constructive change will come from the people to the bishops, you know, to to Rome itself. That 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 good change will bubble up from the bottom. Do we know who's on the drafting committee? I don't. I really don't. I'm I'm a little bit. Uh, I'm speaking in an area that I'm not well informed yeah. about okay. about the constitution. Well, an area where you are well informed is this network called Catholic Whistleblowers that's been formed. That has made a big difference in penetrating yeah. and opening the transparency. I, I agree. This is a remarkable, Catholic whistleblowers, a remarkable group of, of uh, nuns and priests and, and, and other <clears throat> church insiders, people who've occupied official roles within dioceses, who spoke out and uh, who tried to save kids. And they were, most of them were sidelined as a result or retaliated against. And in five or six years ago, uh, we were in touch with these individuals and were really moved by their stories and just um, casually connected them with each other. And that's how they came to form this group. And they still meet every single week. And um, oh, I didn't I, know that. Yeah. And I, I think that, you know, via phone. Um, and they're just this. Um, I think what we're seeing right now is an increase in the number of whistleblowers inside the Catholic Church, you know, and, and people willing to speak out. Uh, we're seeing people step forward. So, and I think that having this nucleus group, Catholic whistleblowers, is really crucial. Plus, uh, one constructive thing the Pope did in his motu proprio last May was to say there can be no retaliation against whistleblowers. So at least according to the letter of the law, whistleblowing is now officially protected when it comes to the issue of child sexual abuse. Whistleblower has become a popular word in the United States in the last month. Yes, it has, yes. <laughs> and this group formed back in the early 2000s, uh, it, it apparently actually laid the foundation for the Me Too movement that followed after that. Is that? Um, I, I think uh, I would. I, the Catholic whistleblowers just formed five or six years ago. Oh, it I, did. Okay. I, yes, but I think what did form the the groundwork for the Me Too movement were the the survivors of Catholic priests who came forward and told their stories in the early two thousands. You know, they started a transformative shift in society, and and they they shifted public understanding of the nature of trauma in childhood and also the nature of institutional cover-up. And as our time comes to a close, I want to ask you something very personal. After 16 years of researching this crisis and seeing all that you see, talking and hearing from victims, do you have any difficulty at all remaining a Catholic? Oh, absolutely. I, I'm very conflicted. Um, 
when I walk into a church, I don't get the same sense of um, peace that I got. In fact, it can sometimes be uh, just completely disturbing to go to church because I'm wondering about the priest on the altar. I'm wondering about the people in the pews. Why are they even here? Why am I here? Um, but the reason I remain Catholic is that uh, basically the most important things in my life, the beauty of them, I can trace to my Catholic roots. Um, my nine brothers and sisters, you know, my mother with her fierce um, devotion to the church, but she was also a critic. Um, but she was never a cynic, you know. I also, and, and my husband, you know, he has um, these Catholic-bred qualities. You know, he's he's loved me inexplicably for 40 years now, and his qualities of humility, his capacity for reverence, are what I trace to his Catholic upbringing. And so we tried to raise our kids. We did raise our kids the same way. Um, the notion that every human being is irreplaceable and precious. I really see Catholicism and the survivors who are coming forward. I see the, these Catholic qualities, even when they've left the church and find the church an absolutely traumatic place to be. Um, it's their generosity, their magnanimity, their humility that uh, and courage that I learned from. Um, so I love the uh, I, I love the qualities of Catholicism, and I'm just Catholic to my core, and could never be in another faith. And thank you so much for being a guest today. Thank you, Rini, for having me. It's a real. Pleasure.